Welcome to Swan Sessions, a podcast from Swan Auction Galleries. Our first episode comes from a live event here at Swan. In June 2015, we hosted a conversation with John Anderson and Phyllis Raskin Anderson titled Paul Cadmus and the Nantucket Man. John and Paul met by chance on Nantucket in 1964. It was the beginning of a love story and collaboration that brought about Paul's celebrated Nantucket Man series, delicate and skillful crayon drawings and egg tempera paintings of John. In this talk, you'll hear John and Phyllis discuss his relationship with Paul, his experiences as a model for Paul and others, and their experiences with the intimate circle of artists that surrounded Cadmus. The evening's discussion was hosted and moderated by Swan Vice President and Director of Prints and Drawings, Todd Wyman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swan Galleries. I'm very happy to see you all here, celebrating this evening tonight in honor of Paul Cadmus, his life and work. We're going to get uh, going to the, the main part of the event, the, the Q&A and the, the stories in just a moment. Hope you've had some time to look at the exhibition and grab a cocktail and have some hors d'oeuvres. We'll be doing more of that afterwards. In looking through the exhibition, one of the things that struck me was what a uh, tradition we have in American art for for the nude, uh, going from, in this cell, from Benjamin West up to Paul Cadmus, uh, which is surprising given, given the, uh, the puritanical leanings. <laughs> That you see throughout the centuries, maybe, maybe because of that, who knows. Uh, another is the, uh, the tradition for artistic families uh, in American art. In this auction alone, the Morans, the Wiggins, the Sawyers, and the Cadmuses. Uh, you know, moving down this wall, you have Father uh, Egbert Cadmus, Paul, and Fidelma, son and daughter. It's an amazing collection spanning uh, Paul's career, and we are delighted to have uh, couple with us who, who knew him so well and have a lot to say this evening, stories about that. So without further ado and any more of my American art nuggets, I'd like to <laughs> introduce Don and Phyllis Anderson and um, get the questions going with you guys. Would you want to ask? That, uh, that's fine. Throw a, throw a softball. Well, well <laughs> when we were entering this whole venture of a great deal of the Cadmus works that were hanging on the wall of our home in Connecticut, one of the things that continually came to mind was what a pleasure might have been to have had this circle of friends around us to sit like at a round table and talk to them and get to know them, find out what brought them all together. And uh, I hope you all will not hesitate uh, to ask us questions, some we may not have answers for. But John certainly has had a lifetime uh, of being the muse, the lover um, <coughs> of Paul Cadmus. Um, I was fortunate to come into this when I met John at an art school. And you can query us about that, but I'll let that lie. <laughs> so again, all of these, this circle, this major circle of friends of Paul's, they came together at various times of their lives. They, they intertwined with each other. Their stories are interesting and different. And they are people who were fearless in their time. Major, major artists, musicians, painters, dancers. Uh, it's quite thrilling to understand what they were to each other and what it means to all of us seated here. 
Um, have I said enough? Have I said too much? Should, should I continue? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh. <laughs> but well, we we did we built tonight's event as a Paul Cadmus and the Nantucket Man, and one of the things that I wanted to know, going back to that, was how you met. Ah. The um, pardon the Nantucket Ferry was the <laughs> thing. Um, I was working out in Nantucket. I was in the theater out there, and also working in a restaurant, as <clears throat> so many do. And um, Paul and a mutual friend, Jimmy Barker, were on the ferry boat leaving the island. And it was shortly after Labor Day. And I was, since I was the navel of the world at the time, the ferry leaving and coming, um, I was watching the crowd. And there I was, and the weather got bad, and um, the ferry was canceled. So Jimmy said, do you want to meet him down there? And I guess Paul said yes, because they came down. And um, I was introduced to Paul. And then we went back to Jimmy's studio and opened it up. And um, he pulled my shirt up and said I'd be a wonderful model for Paul. And um, uh, so um, I scratched my New York, or I got his New York number on a matchbox and uh, tucked it in my pocket. And when I got back to New York, I called him. And there it all started. And uh, so for 35 years, I was. Um, in thrall of Paul and um, his model and lover, and that's how it started. Well, there's so much more. Okay. Uh, I, the, the thing that drew you and Paul together was something that perhaps many people never knew about you, that before you met Paul... I'm a mooner and a flasher. Well, then and now, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Which is how we met. Yes. Uh, but, but, Which explains our close kinship from the get-go. <laughs> uh, but the fact that you had, prior to meeting Paul, met... Oh, well, I was involved with the classical musical world. Uh, before I met Paul, and uh, also then Antarctic Ferry was involved with that one. Because um, <laughs> I was on it when I was a teenager, going out to Nantucket, because my family had a little house out there. Uh, then they had little houses. And um, a man came up to me and said, you look like you know where you're going. And uh, that's a perfect opening line. And I said, yes, I do. I've been coming here all my life. Um, so... He introduced himself and took me back to the back of the boat. And there was um, Bernstein and Howard Hook and people from uh, Sam Barber and people from the musical world. And uh, so the first few years of my gay life, I was involved more with music and that, that crowd. And in those days, everybody knew everybody. The world was so much smaller. And I got involved with the a poetic group downtown, Frank O'Hara and Ken, Ken, Ken Elmsley and um, people like John Ashbery and people. So I was, everybody was all mixed up then. And I don't know if that goes on now quite so much, but the modern age, everybody sort of sticks to themselves more, I think. But anyway, that's how my life started out. And then um, 
the next chapter after I knew Paul was um, I wanted to make some money elsewhere. I wanted to get out and be seen and do things uh, in different venues. So Paul introduced me to um, an old friend of his, Edward Lanning, who was a teacher at the National Academy of Design. And uh, he said I, I should model there. And he got me a job modeling at the National Academy. And that's where I met Phyllis in a sculpture class. And, and there he was. <laughs> and uh, which certainly shaped the direction my own life uh, began at that day, on that day. And um, we had a couple of years of you being the muse of the National Academy mm -hmm. as well. Um, and sitting here in the front row with someone, another gentleman who was part of our little crowd, uh, artists, sculptors, painters, and we still go on today. But the interesting thing I wanted to bring out about you and Paul was that when you and Paul met, Paul was twice your age. Hmm, not quite. Close, close. Almost. Uh, but you brought to the table something that, of your own interest, you're a reader, you have never stopped. You're continually exploring ideas and reading. And he's one of the most incredible people to have for other artists because, number one, he was an incredible model. Number two, he was able to collaborate with Paul mm -hmm. through the years. My good fortune was to have known not only Paul, but John's family. Um, they knew my family, and our lives intertwined in a way that was most unusual. Uh, but then remember, too, all of the people that came through from Paul was born in 1904. Four. So think of who was alive in 1900, the early 1900s, who were Christopher Isherwood, a writer. Living in California, uh, you have Chelichev, who was a friend to Paul Cadmus, uh, another artist who lived not too far for a while. I think he died in 1957, somewhere right around about that yeah. time. Uh, and you had the Lincoln Kirstein connection, and I'm sure most of you know the connection that Lincoln Kirstein is to the ballet. He brought Balanchine over. Through Balanchine, you should go on and talk more about Tanny, well, Lincoln, mm -hmm. and um, the, it was a period of time, I don't know if it exists today. Mm -hmm. There's probably, I can't think of more than two people of Paul's period, Jensen Yao, Mm -hmm. And um, you. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. I wasn't born in 94. Uh -huh. no, 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 no. But you're still here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, are there questions any of you have? We, we take questions from the floor. And we have uh, one of my colleagues, Alexandra, has a mic. So we can bring that up to you if we can ah. one at a time. John, could you uh, describe a modeling session with Paul? 
Oh, or was it organized and what happened? Well, <laughs> first it was finding a pose, and that took quite a while. We, we were both, Paul would have a general sort of idea of what he wanted, and um, I would manipulate. After all, my body is, moves only in certain ways and has certain um, mannerisms. Uh, and we would just explore for quite a while um, finding a pose. And then he would very carefully mark it. Oh, everything just where it's supposed to be. And um, so that when we did it, he would spend maybe for a finished drawing like the one right behind me, at least 12 hours, you know, three-day session. And uh, so he had to mark everything and make sure it was right back in the right place. And um, then during the posing, we would pose, depending on what the pose was, how long I would hold the pose, I would sometimes fall asleep in the pose. Or, but we were always, always talking about um, reading, books, music. Uh, he would put on the radio or something, and we'd try to guess whose music it was or, you know, things like that, styles and all things. So then the, that was basically a modeling session just till he decided that he would abandon that pose. And that was it. And because uh, he was never, you never finish a drawing, really. It's, it goes on and on and on until you can kill it. But uh, so that, that's what that was. Mm. What year is 1964. Five. We started working in 65, really. Yeah. Until his death in 1999. Yeah, I'm curious if, if uh, would, would Paul light you? Was there light involved? As to oh, to yes, he's very light careful about lighting. Yeah, very careful with that. Yeah. He loved to work in corners, funny little places, and have a, you know, it's, um, the house that Lincoln, Kirstein, built for us in Connecticut um, had a big skylight in the middle, the whole, and the Paul studio was the middle of the house. It was Palladian, sort of, everything around that middle room. And Paul hated the light. It was too much, it was too general. So we'd always find little corners. You know, it was perfect light for a sculpture uh, who wants more general light, usually. So um, he was very careful about the lighting. Given that a lot of people are, um, well, John Eberhard, people like that who are passing on Fire how important was Fire Island in addition oh, to Nantucket? Oh, very, very, yeah. Did everyone hear that? <clears throat> and, and what period from when to when? Well, Paul was going out the, to the, the question is on oh. the importance of Fire Island to the, to the whole group. Yeah. Um, Paul was going out to Fire Island before I knew him. And, uh, but when I knew him, 1965 was probably the year I first went out there. And um, he had a friend, Irving Drutman, and who was a journalist and a critic. And he wrote a book about um, uh, Paris and a friend of Janet Flanners and Natalie Murray. And um, let's see. So Irving Drutman and Mike Delisio was a sculptor. And Paul would visit them in Cherry Grove. And that was where I first went, and that was 65. And he also had friends from the ballet through Lincoln uh, who had a house in uh, the Pines, and now, Natasha Molo. 
And she would have a lot of the ballet people come out on weekends, and we'd be out there. And that was fun. I got to know a lot of them out there, and um, Todd Bollander and a lot of the uh, dance people. And, um, <clears throat> well, and Tanny, but I didn't know Tanny out there. Um, Lincoln Mary, uh, uh, married, uh, Balanchine married Tana Cleo LeClaire, who was a wonderful dancer. And um, when they were um, traveling once in um, uh, Denmark, it happened, she got polio when she was in her 20s, early 20s, and she was in an um, iron lung for several months, I think, and uh, never, never walked again. She was confined to a wheelchair, and that's... Uh, such an ironic thing that, uh, but we got to be very friendly because they had a house. That was why Lincoln moved to Connecticut because Balanchine was there, and we were very close uh, neighbors. And um, after Polly was after Tanny had her polio, she required to be carried around and driven out to the country, and I started to drive her out. In this maybe 70s, I started doing that. And um, weekends, when she didn't have some fellows from New York driver, uh, I would drive her out and um, carry, carry her around and put, uh, put her in bed and do things like that and uh, get her up in the morning and uh, take her, her shopping and doing whatever. And we'd go out to eat and I'd wheel her and put her in a chair in the restaurant and things like that. And we got to be very close. So that was a, a wonderful experience for me, getting to know her, because she was such an up person and um, very, in some ways, difficult, because she was uh, pretty um, bold. And, um, but it, it was a wonderful experience for me, that bit. And let's see, what else? She was also a wonderful experience for all of us, <clears throat> because Imagine being at the height of your skills mm. and being felled by a disease. She never complained. Um, she never looked back. It's a huge lesson for any of us to think about, uh, to imagine anything like that befalling you. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this fellow here, I mean. John, one of the interesting things uh, that comes up with Paul, particularly given his influence in the gay community, has been the topic of Paul being a gay artist versus an artist who is gay. Maybe you'll reflect on that a little bit and tell us what Paul's thoughts were about that. Oh, yeah. He, um, he didn't like being classed as a gay artist and believed very much that any artist is an artist shouldn't be limited by race, uh, say I'm a black artist or Chinese artist or anything. You're an artist, and it's the work that is the, the final product is what counts. And um, so he didn't like that limitation. You know, he didn't mind uh, being an artist who happened to be gay. You know, or, and uh, he never proselytized or did anything like that. But, I remember when his, the film about him was first shown in the uh, film festival in New York. Well, I don't remember what year that was. It was around 1980, because uh, 84 it must have been. It was the uh, artist at 80. Um, so he, 
after the film was shown, the place was packed. And we had to get up and lean on the stage and take questions. And so many people said what an effect he had on their lives uh, just by putting little gay people in the back corners, their little things going on. And they saw it. And then they realized, sitting in Nebraska or somewhere, that they weren't the only gay person in the world. They were not alone. And uh, how profound that was for them. But uh, it made Paul cry. So, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> First of all, I want to say thank you to both of you. It's really wonderful to hear you illuminate oh. stuff about Paul's. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, but I, I, as an ex-dancer, so many of his dancing drawings I look at and I think how sculptural they are and how mm -hmm. I'm amazed at how like the weight is correct where it should be. And looking and I look at all of his I look at those drawings, you know, over mm -hmm. and over and yeah. And Essen is like as a model as opposed to a dancer. Like dancers don't like to stand still. No, they're movers. <laughs> so I mean where there are always dancers around and on Fire Island too, but also because they have dancer pictures on Fire Island as well as in studio. Yeah. So you always you always around dancers. I just I'm sort of that's a whole well it's almost um, it's ethereal and not real when I'm looking at the drawings. Yeah. I'm fascinated with that period of time when ballet was brand new and yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He used uh, dancers from the ballet companies um, he knew, and Todd Bowen did model for him, some of the things. Um, I guess they didn't hold the poses very long, but they, he mm -hmm. used real dancers to do the, uh, the pose, you know, the positions and things. Uh, but uh, I was, I danced a little bit, so I, I was aware of um, my body very much that way. And uh, so, uh, but they, you're right, they are so sculptural. I mean, and he never touched sculpture. He never even tried sculpture. He just, it's the three-dimensionalness of his drawings. And, and, just, and he considered every drawing from all directions, what you're going to see from here and here. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was a good experience um, that way. A couple of gentlemen over there have questions. Could you speak maybe a little bit about his friendship with E.M. Foster? He, oh, he yeah. He spoke once about traveling, I think, if I remember right, Paul said something about traveling in Italy mm -hmm. with Foster at one point. Um, I don't know that he traveled in Italy with Morgan, um, but he went and visited him in England quite a bit. I, I had the thrill of going once to meet Forrester uh, the year before he died. I guess it was 1970. Uh, Forrester was about 90 then. And we went to Cambridge and stayed a couple of days. And that was an experience, like, really Edwardian experience. It was a totally different world. And uh, being in the school, we had to sit up on a, a, a raised platform with the whole the faculty and everything. And uh, there I was, this little Twinkie, uh, sitting up there with all these dons and all this stuff. And, uh, and the student body was sitting at a lower level. And uh, then going to Forster's room, it was like a totally other world. And I was just enthralled. And 
But Paul started to get friendly with Forster during the Second World War. They started, Margaret French actually started it, sending care packages sort of to him of things that were hard to get in England. You know, simple things, soap and all these things that were hard to come by during the war. And they struck up a correspondence and um, uh, Forster visited them, stayed in their apartment on St. Luke's Place in the city downtown. Mm. And um, he said, I've impaired everything and broken nothing. That was yeah. Forster's thing. <laughs> There's a charming little visual that you once told me about sitting with Morgan and Paul in Cambridge. Yeah. And what was Paul doing? Oh, he was sewing his robe. His, they had to wear robes. Um, and Forster's robe was just shreds. It was just there. He's, <laughs> I guess he figured, I don't want a new one. I, you know, I'm 90 years old. I don't want a new robe. So Paul sat there sewing while they were talking. Sewing his robe. Many, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's too much. You know? <laughs> Did Jared French remain a part of Paul's life throughout uh, his life? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I don't know if you wanted to. No, go ahead. Oh, did Jared French stay through uh, friends with Paul through his life? Yes, till Jerry died in Rome. They were, they were. We visited them in Rome a couple times and. Margaret moved there, and uh, they stayed friendly, but mm, Jerry was a sort of an irascible person and a little difficult, and so, but we spent more time with Margaret. And Jerry had a, a lover that Paul didn't care for, so that solved a lot of problems. John, how long after you met Paul did you know you were in love with him? And at the time, uh, were your families in on it, or did it all have to be a secret for years? No, never a secret. Um, it just sort of grew. I, wasn't, I didn't go, <gasps> when I first met Paul. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't one of those things. Uh, just knowing him, I, I couldn't help it. I just, I fell in love with him. And uh, I guess he did the same. But maybe he was smitten by my Beauty. I don't know. <laughs> Jack. John, I think uh, one of the things that brought me into the earliest awareness of Paul and his work was the Gleason and oh, the yeah. scandal that, mm -hmm. we could call it a scandal, but all well, of the story, scandal. the whole progression of that, how it came about, and mm -hmm what happened to it, because I think that was one of the earliest of the awareness nationally of Paul's work. Well, it was. Yeah, that was the painting that put him on the artistic map. Uh, it was a painting of sailors in town and doing sort of naughty things, as naughty as they could be, you know, in the 30s. And um, he was hanging in a show at the Corcoran Gallery think it was. And um, an admiral in Washington saw it, didn't like what was going on. He didn't see the gay bit in the corner, but he didn't like what the sailors were doing with women. And um, they said that sailors didn't behave like that. You shouldn't show them like that. <laughs> and so uh, 
the picture was taken out of the show and it caused a, a fuss. Uh, I guess it was Rose, one of Roosevelt's relatives came in, who was secretary of something at that point, and took it out of the show and it became a scandal. And it, it was a WPA picture and that meant it belonged to the world. And um, uh, it was taken out of the show and put into a private club in Washington for a whole long time and lost from view. And uh, Life magazine did a big piece about it at the time and uh, just put, made Paul well known. And then afterwards, he got threats and all kinds of things on it, threats on his life and everything about how could anybody do this. And, um, but he, it made him, and he said, fortunately, I had enough talent that I could back up the scandal and uh, be, maintain myself as a good artist. And that's how he felt about it. And he's very grateful to that admiral. Yeah. <laughs> May I say something? Yes. You know, within this circle of friends, there's an element that is rarely spoken of, Paul Cadmus and his lover, Jared French. Jared French, Paul Cadmus, and their dear friend, Margaret French. When you think about, here's a woman of that period who was also uh, an artist. And then you have Lincoln Kirstein, Paul Cadmus, and Fidelma Cadmus, Paul's sister, married to Lincoln Kirstein, who was also <coughs> another very fine artist. And I've often thought it would be wonderful. <laughs> Fine. It would have been a wonderful idea if someone had. I always looked at it about what enabled those women not only to be artists, but slowly they stopped their artistic talent. It was as if the men, remember Lincoln Kirstein, Paul Cadmus, um, Jared French were formidable men in their field. And the women kind of paled. And it was a voluntary thing. I think, I believe that you've told me many times that Lincoln, the, the women backed off. The men did not overwhelm them on purpose. Lincoln always said to Fidelma, so you've told me, <clears throat> that you know, she's a fine artist. She's a fine artist. He wanted her to continue. But yeah. She... yeah, but the times were different in, in those years. And there are other people we haven't spoken of. George Platt Lines, the young photographer, who um, was part of this group. And, um, you know, this gentleman over here wanted to have a question, I believe. Go ahead. Good. Speaking of women artists, um, either of you or both of you, please comment on Paul's friendship with Ilsa Bischoff. Oh, Ilsa. Yeah. Uh -huh. Her modeling stand is in my yes. studio. <laughs> yeah. And it is. I've seen a portrait that Paul. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. very close. And um, I visited her, and I modeled for her too in uh, New York. And we visited her in. Uh, Vermont, and uh, I guess they were art, stu art students together at some point. I think that's how they met. But they were very close, and she was a fine artist. She was, she was good, and 
she mainly illustrated children's books, I think. That was her main artistic endeavor, but she tried to be, you know, a fine artist. And we have one painting by her of a still life, which is very nice and hangs in the house. And she was a wonderful woman. Good question. <laughs> and there's someone way in the back who had their hand up. Oh, I was going to mention. Um, I suppose that probably came about through uh, Lincoln. Monroe was uh, head of publications at the Museum of Modern Art. And I think, and Lincoln was involved with the museum also with its founding. And with Alfred Barr, I think it was. I think that's probably how that connection happened. Benway and uh, then George Lines was involved with a sort of a, a third in that bunch. And um, they were close friends till they all died. Uh, but uh, that was a nice um, experience knowing them. Glenn was a fine writer. He ended up having sort of writer's block and just ended up doing essays and criti critiques and things. Uh, he went many years without writing a major book and tried to and didn't, couldn't, you know. But then Monroe remained uh, very close with Pauly, yeah. In the back? I was just wondering if you collect art yourself, and so what's some of your favorite pieces in your collection? Well, my favorite piece is obviously Paul's. Nowadays, don't use um, I don't, I, I don't, but people have given me pictures that when I model, sometimes I, I get a painting by somebody in a class, which I always appreciate because that's the nicest thing you can give to someone is your art, you know, I think. Uh, so I really love that. But I, I can't afford collecting. There's somebody up here. Oh, sorry. And you guys. You, you mentioned that Paul never worked in sculpture, and yeah. he obviously worked in print and drawing and painting. In those media, where were the areas that you felt he struggled with that Ooh. he was, that came harder to him, let's say, or that he perhaps complained about? Huh. If any. Uh, well, that, that's a matter of eliminating the fact that he did not choose to be a sculptor. Yeah. But... Um, I don't think there was any, there was not an issue in his mind about it. I watched him, I'd look over his shoulders. Paul would have more than myself. The sureness of his hand. Uh, he had his ideas. You know, one of the things that we are doing, John and myself, we're archiving all of the papers. Paul left behind 80, <laughs> years of, yeah. of boxes and of papers, and slowly we are archiving this. And although when you're archiving, you don't have, you can't take the time to read every piece of paper. You want it in a certain order as quickly as possible. But still you do pick up pieces of paper which give yeah. insights into these people. And we have, we have two more questions of her. Um, I've been fascinated by the art of Paul's family. Mm. And um, I not only his father, who shows great skill, and you have a number of pieces here from the father, 
but I think also as his sister. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm interested to know what influence they had on him, what their relationship was about, and also whether his sister continued with her art. Yeah, and you, you know that his mother was an artist too, and as Phyllis was saying, took along that idea of taking a back seat. Yeah, I guess she, she was an illustrator no. also. Um, but let's see. His father was probably the most influential one, but they had a difficult relationship. He didn't really like his father much. Um, he had a gun in the house, and Polly threw it in the Hudson River. And that, that, that didn't make things easier. Mm-hmm. But uh, the father would have been a wonderful artist, except that he had a family to support. So he was a lithographer in a, a work week thing. So he's a weekend painter, which is unfortunate. And he became involved with the old line school there in Connecticut. And they lived there a bit. Uh, and he, after his mother died, his father remarried, and Paul didn't like his stepmother at all, so that they became rather estranged. Um, but his mother, uh, he loved dearly. And both his mother and his sister were kind of um, uh, nervous wrecks, let's say. Paul was almost a nervous wreck, not quite. <laughs> But Fidelmo's like a, I could see an extension of, uh, an exaggeration of Paul's nature. And she had breakdowns and would have, a, that's why, partly why she stopped painting was, uh, Lincoln was such an impetuous, he was a, um, a high and low person. Um, bipolar. Bipolar. And uh, he would have these frantic creative periods, every subject, every project going. And then he would get very down, and then that was no fun. But Fidelma uh, came from a poor family. Paul's family was quite poor. They had, and, and, but Lincoln came from a rich family, and he, he was prone to giving on the spur of the moment parties, lots of people coming in the house, and Fidelma couldn't handle it. She just had to uh, stop painting. She couldn't deal with all this impetuousness going on. And I think that's why she stopped. And, uh, I don't really know why Margaret stopped, but she didn't entirely. And so you had a last, last question? One, one more there? So, were you raising your hand? No? Over here then? Uh, no, there are two. Just, just going to take there. one more question here. But they're both important. And two more. All right. You're the boss. <laughs> Do you have any pictures in the cell that you're particularly um, have a difficult time getting letting go of? I, I will tell you very quickly, I once asked Paul as he was taking a particular painting of, it's called The Haircut. Mm. It was John standing behind Paul cutting his hair. Mm. And when I looked at it and I looked at Paul and I said, how can you sell this? Mm. It's, it's your life, you're the, the two lives. How can you possibly sell it? And Paul always had a way of giving me a great answer. Well, Phyllis, that's how I make my living. (laughs) Um, Yes, (laughs) it was always right on. David? John, you once quoted uh, Paul to me uh, 
said something, on, and I'm paraphrasing. I would love it if you could elaborate on it a little bit. When 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 I draw, I'm drawing the model towards me mm, yeah, or yeah. to me. Oh, and that to me summed up so much of what Paul did. I mean, these drawings, they to me are beyond sensitive, and they're as if they're drawn with kisses. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful, yeah. large quality. It I was started, It started that's exactly that's by someone asking Paul, how do you draw the model? And his answer was? You draw the model towards me. I draw the model yeah. towards me. But that was a quote from one of his teachers. Um, I don't remember which one. He, quote, he was quoting another person. So it's a quote twice removed. But that's pretty good. <laughs> he also said another observation of an, an older artist. Um, you pretend you're a fly on the model crawling over <laughs> the, the flesh, you know, feel the sensitivity of that. So, but that was good. Good remembrance. <laughs> John, Lewis, yeah. thank you guys so very much. Thanks for listening to Swan Sessions, a production of Swan Auction Galleries. We'd like to thank John Anderson and Phyllis Raskin Anderson for their generous and compelling conversation. For more information on Swan, our specialists, and our auctions, check us out at swangalleries.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Swan Galleries. <laughs>